What's quite extraordinary, I find, is that a technology that's comparatively new, so what we're talking 2008, 2009, depending on how you talk about, is already forcing almost every single central bank around the world to look at new forms of money. That was Alex Sims. This episode is a little bit different because she is an OG in the blockchain space and, as of the time of recording, a newcomer to the near ecosystem. We draw on her extensive experience to gain a unique vantage point and explore a wide range of topics such as the shortcomings of the legal system and what drew her into the blockchain space, competition and jurisdiction, insights into the regulatory processes and stance from regulators around the world, and DAOs. We use the Near Digital Collective as a way to introduce Alex to the Near Tech stack and all of the experiments that we're doing in the decentralized governance space. And, uh, well, she had a lot to say about that. Alex is an unconventional academic that challenges the status quo, and I have to say, me as a host, and drops insights and truth bombs on everything from history to UX. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, let's jump in. Enjoy. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, it is an absolute honor to be in person at the University of Auckland with Alex Sims. Alex is an associate professor at the Business School, has a PhD in DAOs, and is part of the Executive Council of Blockchain New Zealand. Welcome, Alex. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Was that introduction all accurate? Yes, it was. Fantastic. I've been in Auckland for just over two weeks. As soon as I arrived, I started looking for the crypto community here and the innovation programs at universities, blockchain student clubs, and your name popped up pretty quickly and in multiple places. So thanks so much for making the time and for finding this room for us. That's uh, my pleasure. I don't know if you want to start by giving us a really quick introduction. Normally, I start with asking people how they got into the wonderful world of crypto. But I guess that you probably have a lot of professional background that weaves into this story. So, yeah, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'll just give you my sort of Genesis story because I think we've all got our Genesis stories. I've been interested in law and tech for a very long time. And my main area of research was copyright, which is all technology. Anyway, I was listening to a couple of podcasts back to back because I listened to lots of different things. And they're about blockchain Ethereum and smart contracts. I was thinking about, so I knew about Bitcoin as this weird internet money. This was in 2016. It was May 2016. And two podcasts, one was a Canadian tech podcast and one was a New Zealand radio, New Zealand one. They were talking about blockchain, Ethereum and smart contracts. And I just went, this is it. This changes everything. And there was a conference coming up. That was one of the reasons behind one of the interviews in three days' time. And I said, I've got to be there. It was in Auckland. And I went along and that was sort of it. I just knew. It was just obvious to me how this changes everything because I work in paradigm shifts. I've worked out now, finally, that's my specialty. I can see things. I know the gut reaction, what, what's going to happen because I know how the world works. And this is also, I won't go on for too long, but because I've been reflecting on a lot of these things and I was a teenager in the 90s or maybe slightly more than a teenager and I 
came across internet came along and I never thought wow this is going to change everything I just gradually crept up I didn't really think much of it because I didn't know how things worked and so with blockchain smart contracts the law all these different things it was like yes and I've had that just recently with chat GPT with this AI generated wow this is going to change everything as well and so anyway that's my sort of genesis story but also what I did is I changed all my research which is very unusual so normally (laughs) academics come along I've got a strong reputation and all this stuff in certain areas and I go I'm going to change it and everyone said you're crazy this stuff is just how could you do this this is just a bubble it's a joke and let's just say I've had the last laugh because now almost everybody is doing some type of thing in blockchain. And the trouble is most of the academics, unfortunately, I wouldn't say clueless, but it's concerning. Pretty close. And that's actually fascinating and there's so much to unpack there. First thing I want to mention is in the most hilarious ways, I'm pretty sure I tried to attend that blockchain conference in Auckland back in 2016. And this may start giving us a bit of a flavor for what the landscape is like in New Zealand. The visa processing times were so long, like they just took four weeks or something. I missed a conference. I actually messaged him like, hey, can I get a refund? Because you just took way too long to process a tourist visa. I guess it opens up the door to a bit of my story. We can have a bit of parallel timelines here. It's a conversation. I do dig into everyone's Genesis story because usually there's something from your personal background that makes it click. I grew up in Venezuela. I moved to Australia in 2008. I started studying law. And at the time, I thought that law was probably the way to have the biggest impact in society. I wanted to hold all these bad governments to account and to really be able to have an influence. And as you go, you start to understand the real world, as you mentioned. I think that's the best aspect of aging gracefully. You start worrying less about the gray hair and you're like, I get it. I can move in a very strategic way now. I really enjoy, especially because even though there's a pretty strong representation from developing countries, and it's fascinating to map out the corruption across many different cultures, I'm sometimes even more interested on what makes it click for people in developed countries. Because it is clear that Australia and New Zealand punch above their weight. We're very small population-wise, but the outcome, technology in general, but even early days crypto, there's been some pretty heavy influence and presence of people here from the very beginning. Yeah, I'd like to keep unpacking your story. I'm curious, you mentioned that your field now is paradigm shifts. Were there any paradigm shifts before crypto that drew your attention? And what were you researching beforehand? Like the body of work that you gave up on to go into crypto? Okay, being called unconventional. So that's a nice way of saying it. But I think part of it, and you come back to law, my joke now is I don't like law. I try to do as little law as possible, and everyone sort of laughs and thinks, what? And this also comes into what made it click for me, is that the law is all ex post, okay? So it doesn't stop anyone from doing something. It's, for example, this is probably the best, sorry, not the worst type of example, but it's easy. So in New Zealand, we have pedestrian crossings. And so if someone's about to walk on the pedestrian crossing, you're meant to give slow down, stop, and let them cross. But if you don't, and you barrel into them and kill them, you have broken the law, and you can be held accountable. But that doesn't bring the person back. 
And most of the time we break laws and nothing happens anyway. That's what part of what made me when I went, ah, this changes everything because blockchain allows us to actually stop someone breaking the law in the first place. But what's the ironic is that, and this is where it becomes difficult, especially with DAOs, is that, yes, we can stop people, but as we know with law, there are no real hard and fast rules. It all depends. So you want all these exceptions and these leniency type of things. So that's in trying to marry those two things. But also to your point about developing countries getting this stuff, quite quickly. I think part of that is because they're used to having, for example, you said Venezuela and Argentina, having disastrous, not sound banking systems, the government will come along and effectively rip everything away from you. And so there's a Bitcoin, you can actually hold your assets, you're not beholden. Different countries are coming at it at different angles. 100%. And I think that's actually a really nice segue into the submission from the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, because when you look at developing countries, it's almost easier to have the conversation because you don't have to compare what you have now with the new thing. People have already written off what they have now. What you have is a different set of issues. People are like, well, we'll buy into any alternative that works. What you may have is less skilled people, less capital, and you start bumping into just a reality of product and user experience. Like, even if everyone in this university wanted to sign up today, can it scale? Back in the day when I got involved, and I probably should stop saying this publicly, but we actually launched a Bitcoin exchange in Venezuela. It lasted not more than three months. (laughs) Regulation got to us literally everywhere and then the market. But my vision at the time was to have a bit of an arbitrage between... We have the capital and the talent. At the time in Australia, we got a license from an exchange. I was working with them at their office. I was meeting incredible people at meetups. How can we leverage that willingness to help and to take the technology where it is needed? Initially, to solve a problem for these users, but over time, it will be that vision of how can we get more local talent? The local engineers pull them this way and really go beyond the national borders for competition. And that's why I bring up the Reserve Bank of New Zealand submission, because one of the things you said last week in the future of money is that there were several types of risks, as accurately identified by the paper, but there is one risk that they don't point out, which is the risk of doing nothing. And in this tiny, beautiful, honestly, as close as it gets to Paradise Island, we have to understand that we're now competing globally. And turning our backs on the technology is going to be extremely expensive in the long run. I'd like to hand over the mic to you and see if we can start unpacking that submission because it is a bit of a monster of a submission, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, I totally agree. And again, that's another paradigm shift. So New Zealand has been, you've come here, you know how hard it is to get here. And we've been very insular. And so we can control things. But with the internet... That's all gone. And with blockchain, for example, I've seen this repeatedly. Say, for example, we've got cryptocurrency exchanges in New Zealand, and we've got some of the trying to meet the FATF requirements. We, we go above what is required and say, oh, we're protecting New Zealand consumers. But of course, all you need to do is get online and go off to some exchange on the other side of the world with absolutely no protection. And 
also then to your point about the major risk that wasn't identified in the Reserve Bank's Future of Money issues paper is that, yes, it is not a case of just sitting here doing nothing and we'll all be fine. We won't be. I actually think, and I'm writing a, a submission on this, the biggest threat actually isn't, of course, not a cryptocurrency, decentralized ones. It's something like the digital yuan. You know, if that starts to be used by a lot of businesses because it's easier to use, you can start using smart contracts and things, that's almost our monetary sovereignty gone. But also another quick point, you're saying about the UX effectively. It sucks with blockchain. But that's one of the reasons why when what was then Facebook announced publicly its Libra, which then became DM, there was so much fear and the regulators jumped up and down because you've already got, already onboarded how many people, billions of people around the world, there would be really good UX. But also another point on that, which I found quite frankly bizarre, and I don't know about other people as well, was that we all knew what was going on. Everyone in the crypto blockchain space knew it, and yet it caught the regulators completely unaware. And actually another point with that Future of Money issues paper is that when it talks about stable coins, it doesn't differentiate between stable coins. It, in the appendix it talks about, but there's a huge difference, whether it's a stable coin that's issued by a traditional bank, for example, ANZ in, the, in Australia, oh, they've announced or released their own one, something like that from a highly regulated entity versus a completely decentralized one, MakerDAO from DAI, which is, there's nothing there. But it's quite, it's, again, it's all about paradigms. It's quite interesting because, and this came through on that future of money on some of the questions, as people said, oh, but if you've got a stable coin that's backed by collateral, for example, gold, then it's safe. But again, you're coming into this paradigm of having an auditor checking, you've got to trust the auditor, and even if it was correct at the, that point of time, there's nothing now to satisfy someone that they've actually got those assets backing them. The stablecoin conversation is like a beast because even when you look at regulation, there's many questions around what happens with stablecoins issued by other countries. Are we going to stop people from issuing a stablecoin from Singapore or from Australia? That's why I'm very big on drawing as much attention to this and getting it right. My theory is we only really need one country to get it right. And in a global competitive environment, assuming we don't go all rogue, which the US seems like they may be trying, the best standard should win. And that's why I was reflecting on why am I bullish on the technologists, even though we really have all to lose. Because the people that are in crypto right now self-select are people that are driven by a mission, are people that have a very strong vision of how things should be. Even if you take into account all the crazy speculators and NFTs and scammers, they're all a separate bucket. There is such a strong commitment from people and that vision that we mentioned before about using these new tools to solve old problems that I think they have a better chance against, say, somebody who went to a beautiful university such as this one, they got good grades, now they work for the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, they have to work on the tasks assigned to them. Kudos to the regulators here and the Bank of New Zealand for being open to submissions of publishing papers, because 
I feel sorry for the people having to research these. It's like you telling me, hey, Alejandra, go home and research, I don't know, like genome therapy or something. It's a big undertaking. So, yeah, curious to see how you see that relationship with regulators here and the openness or, I guess, the viability of having discussions and hopefully get to a framework that works for everyone. With the Reserve Bank, they, they've been doing a lot of work over a number of years. And so there are some within the Reserve Bank, the money and cash team, who are really good. And as another sort of disclosure, the Reserve Bank is thinking about doing a CBDC, so Central Bank Digital Currency, and it's got a forum, which is industry people. And I'm one of the people on that forum. So just full disclosure there. I've been dealing Actually, with them for a while. And so that's, they are thinking. They are definitely, there's people there who are very good. So that's fine. But I would just push back at you saying that the best standard will win. Because that's not the way the world works. We can probably tear that apart. But from my experience growing up in Venezuela and seeing that US dollar as a standard. Something really strange has happened in my lifetime. I grew up in Venezuela and I was extremely pro-American because as a foreigner and as a foreigner experiencing oppression, you only really get to experience the ideals of America or the values. You don't get to experience it day to day as some of the people that live there may have. I would have a very different conversation to a single issue voter with legitimate grievances. Whatever those values may be, and whether they actually uphold in modern days. When you actually narrow down to the USD, it was the highest form of money at some point in time. Even looking at countries like Panama, Salvador, like they have the USD as their local currency. Then the question becomes, are we entering a time where there can be a currency that supersedes the USD? I think people are very quick to dismiss that if we look at something like the yuan, because you need the state infrastructure to back it up, and nobody wants to be subservient to the Chinese, perhaps the Russians do now. But then the mix changes, because if we have a technological solution that enables countries to collaborate and create a joint currency, or that enables you to reach 100 times more people. I see in Venezuela, I'll tell you a funny story, my mom opened a bank account in USD, in Panama, Panama introduces a visa requirement for Venezuelans, so she can't go to Panama <laughs> to touch her money. There's a minimum balance every month, and it's extremely expensive in fees. And this is one of the better accounts. So when you start looking at, oh, and Venezuela is basically fully dollarized now. There's a ton of USD on the streets. There is an insane amount of friction. Like people don't have any change to give you. You open like a paper ledger with a store to keep track of things. Anyone looking at that should see a lot of opportunity around how can you make it easier for more people to access the USD. We have a ton of startups now trying to bank people now with USD, but I just keep thinking that there could be something that comes on top. It's probably a wasted opportunity to the US that they're not embracing USD as a stable coin, and they seem to be going the other direction, but I don't see a reason why. Singapore couldn't become a major hub, issuing even a USD stablecoin. Even in New Zealand or Australia, there are stable jurisdictions that I think, if they're very serious about it, could very easily take over a huge market. It's geopolitical. That's why. And also, again, with the best standard will win, that's 
doesn't happen even with technology. So a good example, and I use this all the time, is with keyboards, we have, it's called QWERTY because that's the beginning. And the reason we have that is because early typewriters, when they were, have you heard about the story? No? Okay. I can put in the show notes later an article, <laughs> as they say. So it, old typewriters, when they were physical ones, which had the arm going bang, if you had the same sort of arms coming too often together, it would jam it. And so what they designed was a system so that you didn't have commonly typed letters jamming the system. So it's called QWERTY. If you look at the keyboard, the top five on the left say QWERTY. Okay. We now no longer use mechanical keyboards, but we're still using the old way. Now, someone years ago developed a better keyboard setting, which is much more efficient, and you can type a lot faster than you can with QWERTY. And it took a bit of training, so you could retrain people, and they'll be much faster. And it was just through accidents that the businesses that were selling those typewriters failed. And so we've got a substandard technology that we use, and that is, is path dependency. So that's part of it. It is not a case of the best technology. but And I think that combine that with the geopolitical monetary sovereignty, I don't see it. I don't see it happening. But what, I mean, and again, history, I actually... I do like technology, but history is even more interesting. And in fact, I'm teaching a course on blockchain for a master's program. And the first week, first module is all about history. It's all about our attitudes to technology, how they're adopted and all these things, because it's the same thing. Everything, it takes a long time to come along and people's reactions. Blah, blah, blah. So it's all the same. So whatever it is, and that's part of the best technology. It's not the best technology. And in fact, mind you, there are, there's one difference, I think, with blockchain. And the one difference, actually, is that Bitcoin is still going. Because normally, the first of anything, it's quickly gets superseded because the technology is clunky, which is quite interesting. Long live Satoshi. Yes, whoever Satoshi is. Not you and me, that's for sure. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> You bring up a really interesting point, which I also had in my mental list of things to raise. The relationship between different regulators worldwide. And I actually put it on my computer as, are we friends or frenemies? We can probably identify different tiers of relationship or partnerships. First one would be Australia New Zealand. The joke when I got my Australian citizenship and permanent residency at the time was that it was a two for one. Both countries have such a close relationship that gaining that status in one gives you access to the other one, almost as if you were a permanent resident or citizen of the other one. I'm pretty sure that even Australian permanent residents in New Zealand get to vote. So, so something very unusual, but it tells a lot about the very close nature of the relationship. Yet, I'm wondering at what points do you use regulation to get a competitive edge? I know that the Reserve Bank paper has things like protecting the tax base. I'm wondering if you have any insights on how much scope there is to really push for an edge. Is there much said around brain drain, how to encourage different industries to relocate? I might break it into two. First of all, I'd address actually within countries and then between countries. The problem with New Zealand and Australia 
is we have a whole lot of different regulators. So you've got the Reserve Bank, which is quite forward-thinking, but you've got things like the Financial Markets Authority, the FMA, the Department of Internal Affairs, the DIA, you've got the IRD, you've got the Ministry of Justice, and you've got a whole lot of things, a Financial Intelligence Unit from the police. And a good example of this is they see... I don't know if you've come across the parable of the blind man and the elephant. No, but no. we can include in the show notes. Okay. Please do tell me. <laughs> well, okay, so what it is, an old, it's an old parable, has good cartoons of it, is you've got this elephant and you've got these different people that are coming along and one of them feels the tusks and says, this is hard and sharp and someone else feels the tail and this is soft and whatever and someone else feels the trunk. And so they're all seeing different parts of it where they're the same beast. And so what's happening is you get someone from tax coming along, all the tax base. You get someone from the financial unit, intelligence unit. Oh, it's all criminal money laundering type of things. Even within a country, it's very hard to for people to agree because they can't see it. And also, it's really difficult when you are an expert in something because that's what you that's what you see it. And that's actually segueing a little more, diverting a little bit, is with blockchain, what's interesting is you get people from all different areas coming along and putting their collective expertise, which is really good. But regulators really do struggle with that. I've said before, with the cryptocurrency exchanges, where you've got some of the regulators saying, oh, let's just make it really safe for New Zealand consumers, not realising, of course, they can go overseas. And other people are saying, but we want to bring capital, we want to bring jobs into New Zealand, but they can't because they make it so difficult. One of the issues we've got, which was addressed the other day, and I'm addressing it in my submission to Reserve Bank on the future of money, is... It's almost impossible to get a bank account and keep a bank account. So how are you going to get innovation here? So that's anyway, that's within the country. And I know the Australia's got the same problem. Some other places are a little bit easier. So, for example, Singapore, which you mentioned before, has got MASS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And that's like everything together. So they make things a lot easier to do it. Hong Kong is a little bit similar. And also even geography. So geography is a big thing. And you think of somewhere, Singapore and Hong Kong, they're a city-state. They can have everyone together. And even, and actually London is also, everything's in the same area. It's the centre of power. You've got the courts, you've got the industry in London. Now I'm actually segueing onto the countries. Okay, England is actually one of the places that is embracing this especially in the legal setting. The was it Law Commission last year released a 500-plus page report, and if you've seen it, it's well worth looking, and just saying, look, we just changed some laws. Make cryptocurrencies, make them quite clearly, or digital assets, property. So we don't have things going through courts for the next 10 years, and do a whole lot of other ones. So they're very pro, <coughs> realising that there are real opportunities here. With New Zealand and Australia... One, again, coming back, one bit of the government says, yes, it's an opportunity, and the other bit says no. So it's a really mixed messages. We, in New Zealand, we are effectively losing people, and they're more likely actually to go over to Australia because there's a bit more money there, they're a bit more receptive. The US is a bit of a basket case. Why would you type of thing? That is the question... And what makes me think that there's a window of opportunity. Like, why would you go to a place? Like, I'd be very open. 
From Venezuela, Australia is not the first logical choice. The U.S. is right there, extremely expensive. The day you graduate, you have to leave the country. There are no pathways for staying, or they're very complex. Canada, a little bit more affordable, very tough winters. And they offer the ability for international students to work only within campus, or at least at the time. I'm not sure what the current regulation is. In Australia, the student visa allows you to work legally part-time. And when you graduate, there's a graduate visa. When I started, it was two years. Now it's up to four years of legal full working rights. So even if you go back to your country, you have a good savings nest. And there are pathways to stay. And there's actually encouragement to stay. So I was very strategic in identifying those set of opportunities. And the geography came later. Naturally, I've met many people that go to Australia, especially from Europe, and they end up going back. Everywhere from the Netherlands to Estonia, they tell you, Europe is just better. Culture, density, like the ability to travel. I think there's a reason why Australia participates in Eurovision. We're really trying to compensate for, can we feel connected without people actually leaving? And that's why I think that when you're starting to see centers that have been the focus of innovation traditionally starting to be a little bit wobbly, that's when the opportunity arise. I've done some very loose research on the Callahan Center for Innovation in New Zealand, on the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, the Global Impact Visa. It seems like the willingness is there. Just on that, it was. That visa's gone now. They're still, they've still got a couple of cohorts coming through, but they were ones that were okayed before the lockdown. I think it's so short-sighted. But... That's very sad. Mm. Hopefully, with millions of people listening to this, we'll bring it back. Because it, I even wonder what the reasoning would have been or what the success of some of these programs would have been. Because up until now, any industry, you would be pressed to find compelling arguments. Why New Zealand over the UK? But if you're able to say, hey, New Zealand will actually give you clarity, regulatory clarity, there may be some benefits, whatever structure you can come up with, the crypto industry is growing very rapidly. And traditionally, the demographics, I hate to generalize, (laughs) young single males, they're very mobile. I've been traveling for the last seven months. It's actually amazing how this is a cohort of very well-connected people, very smart, who are able to go to conferences all over the world, who are able to host events all over the world. If we had the right structure, I can easily see a decent cohort spending at least six months in New Zealand and contributing to the knowledge and skills transfer here. And even if they don't become tax residents for income tax purposes, we've got the consumption tax, what is it, 15%. So there are ways in which getting people in creates lots of benefits, even if indirectly. I agree. We should be getting people in. As you say, people will be here spending money But also, I think there's still a stigma when you say crypto, people say money launderers, mm, criminals, and it's, yeah. I always say, look, okay, if that's what you want to do, then get rid of, like, iTunes gift cards and all those types of things. There's just so much better ways to launder money. (laughs) I know. One of my many jokes, I'm not very funny, but is, is, well, look, if you're a criminal, the existing banking scheme, banking systems plus company registrations worked really well. So why would you learn something new? If you just Google 
London, money laundering capital of the world, it comes up because it is the money laundering capital of the world. And Vancouver is not far behind. There was a fantastic, beautiful scandal a few years ago in Australia. You probably heard about it. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia, the largest bank. To be fair to them, they're very innovative and they're always pushing for tech solutions. They're very forward thinking. Horrific exchange rates, but very forward thinking in terms of technology. There's these ATMs, which I think are now very commonplace. I've seen them in New Zealand with Westpac and others, where they allow cash deposits. And they allow cash deposits into third-party accounts. This may blow some people's minds. I know when I went to the US, I couldn't deposit cash into my sister's bank account. They laundered billions. And that's what I understood. People that are not criminals can find so many much better options to exchange money. Especially you go overseas, you get a travel card, wise, whatever. These people laundering money saw the terrible exchange rate as just a cost of doing business. And because the bank made insane amounts of money in fees, they looked the other way. I'm obviously not an expert in money laundering. I haven't done it. But I would imagine that if you had a ton of money to launder, register a business, find a way to cash it through, paying tax on it is just a cost of doing business. Now you've got clean money. There's so much dodgy stuff happening everywhere. Every so often there's a scandal because the regulators fail to spot these things when it's their actual duty. Crypto is literally a playground for innovation now. There is value being transacted, but it's tiny. It is really a place where most people are here for the tech. Maybe that's just more about my circles than the, the broader market. I think, though, that it's a th- it is a threat. And so whatever, by fair means or foul, is to try to stop it. And that's one of the reasons why. But also what's quite extraordinary, I find, is that a technology that's comparatively new, so what we're talking 2008, 2009, depending on how you talk about, is already forcing almost every single central bank around the world to look at new forms of money. That's extraordinary. Indeed. You've had some fantastic stories and insights. I've got one for you, though. Have you heard of the book American Kingpin? No. I listened to the audiobook a few years ago. It is fantastic. Would highly recommend. It is the story of Ross Ulbrich, the founder of the Silk Road. The entire book is wild. But there's one thing that, as somebody who was about to finish law school at the time, really struck at me, was that there were so many regulators involved in the investigation that the investigation became completely inefficient. They kept pulling people in when the drugs were coming through the border. It was Homeland Security, but it was not enough drugs to trigger a warning. And then there was C's, there was that, there was the IRS for tax evasion. FBI, even within different states, had disagreements. So the two things that I remember that were mind-blowing was all these intelligence apparatus, the one guy that solved it was actually a rank-and-file IRS agent. You know how he did it? No. Oh, I, I watched a documentary. He, what is it? I think Ross Olber, he, he mucked up, didn't he? And he used the email address to put out something on a bulletin board or something. This tax agent thought, going out for a walk with his dog, whatever, he's like, I wonder what the very first mention of the Silk Road was on the internet. Like, like, how did the word get out? He looked it up on Google, went all the way back to the very first mention. It was a magic mushroom site. And at that point in time, Ross used his real email and his name 
Or, and that's how they got him. It's just fascinating to see that the regulators were all grandstanding and were very narrow tunnel vision in the departments. And that just made it much harder. That's the thing with that elephant, with blind men and the elephant. But also, I seem to remember, I haven't read the book. It sounds really good. I, as I said, I saw a documentary on it and they ignored him. He was saying, jumping up and down for ages and got nowhere. And it took them, what, six months or something or afterwards? The day that they got him, it was an FBI agent that, I guess, went rogue in the sense that he ignored the guidelines. He ignored the central FBI and the New York. There was three of them monitoring Ross outside his house. Because the challenge that they had was he had to be captured with his laptop open. So he goes to a cafe and he starts doing his thing online. They had, at that point, they had plants everywhere. So there's agents chatting to him. They know he's logged in. Closes the laptop, goes to a San Francisco library. And the FBI guys were like, hey, this is our chance. Like, we can get him. They were like, no, wait. There were something like 12 full-blown SWAT teams heading to the library. And they were like, if you have these over-the-top police operations, it's just going to lock the computer. Case over. So they approached him. I'm pretty sure she was an undercover agent as well. A lady that was sitting across from him at the table. One of the FBI agents just punched her. And when Ross got up to intervene, he got immediately tackled and they took the laptop. Open, logged in. He's locked for life now. I think unfairly, but that's an entirely separate topic. It's a good point. Guidelines and principles and all those types, and law, if you follow them, nothing gets done. I, um, yeah, that's why I just ignore all those things. See, for a moment, I hesitated on having an academic with a 300-page PhD, and I was like, maybe it's going to be boring. This podcast is wild, but I see that my hunch and my intuition paid off. It, it was definitely a positive sign when I sent you a few articles to read beforehand and you asked for the audio version. <laughs> no, just, yeah, just for the listeners, yeah, I prefer to listen to stuff. Beautiful, I agree. I think there's a very strong role that we have in the community to shape the narrative, And one thing that I always try to tell people, and if regulators are listening, I want them to ponder on this. Crypto actually brings up a lot more transparency. And you mentioned that last week with the future of money. We can have much more privacy because at the moment we're giving everything to the banks, for instance. Let's imagine a scenario where we do have a CBDC. Have the government officials thought of a case where we have real-time inflation data and we can monitor the economy much better? We can have much more efficient tax collection and record keeping in a privacy-preserving way. But most importantly, we can actually have much more transparent spending of government resources. I don't know about New Zealand. I've been told it is a country with the lowest corruption in the world. Every time I hear that, I remember people I met in Argentina that tell me that Paraguay is a country with the second highest corruption in the world because they paid not to be the first one. So I always take these rankings with a grain of salt, but even if there isn't a major issue in New Zealand, as you say, the horse has bolted. If we do go the CBDC route, it can't be one directional. We want to know what the citizens are doing. This should actually be something that the citizens ask for because we want to know what the government is doing. 
that's one of the potential things. But the I know that there are a lot of concerns about privacy because the people are worried about government having too much information about them. But I and a lot of people just go, we're slightly confused because the same people that are saying that are putting their lives on social media. They're using their bank cards or whatever, and there's all that information there. And it's and in some ways, the government will be a lot more careful about privacy than in other settings. But then people say, well, if that's, yes, maybe now, but a later government could come along and change it. But it's, yeah, I don't know. You can, I mean, if you're really concerned about your privacy, then just use cash. And certainly don't have mobile phone on you or anything like that. And it's almost like, you can. Some people will do that. They will genuinely do that. But life is it, life has become very difficult. And also another so another quick aspect of this is that there's a lot of people. So when I say a lot, some people pointing their fingers at the Reserve Bank in New Zealand, saying you're trying to get rid of cash so that you can then monitor us. It's not that. It's the Reserve Bank is actually trying to keep cash in circulation. The issue is with businesses now is they don't want cash. And when you think about it, it's perfectly rational because if you have cash, you've got to go and get the cash and that is becoming harder and harder to do. You've got to do all the reconciliation. You've got safety of your staff members. for being So it, the ability to use cash is declining and that then has a issue with equity and all sorts of, of issues. Another quick thing, we talk about taxes, better collection of taxes. I know this is going back a few years ago, but the the Australian government got really excited when it realised that you could effectively have programmable money so that when you go and make a purchase at a shop, you could have real-time payment of the tax to the tax department. And so you can start to do things like that. And But also you can have things that are of benefit to people. So another bit that I did a while ago, or picked up on, was a lot of people go into debt and have real problems because they only get paid once a week or once a fortnight, not really once a month, that's more of a US thing. They then have done work, but they haven't been paid yet, so they then have to borrow money. But we could, the technology already for this, is to be paid on an hourly basis. And so something like a a CBDC could help with that, for example. Yeah, this actually leads to my next section of the of this rambling pursuit. I was wondering, from your vantage point, how much would you say that the stakeholders involved understand the technology or the range of technologies available and even the pace that it is developing at? Because if we were stuck at the, say, original Ethereum stack, I can see how there can be a range of arguments and even specific things such as privacy. I do think that there are ways to have privacy-preserving transactions now, things like ZK proof. You can prove who spent the money, but not what they spent it on. There's just a range of tools that are popping up that may take out some of the common arguments that come up to resist these technologies. Yeah, I agree. There is a range of things, but some of the knowledge of people is woeful. And I don't know whether that's blind ignorance or what. So, for example, hopefully it's moved on, but I know over the last year or so, 
especially with the, say, for example, NFTs. People jumping up and down saying, oh, my God, you can't use them. They're destroying the world. And it's maybe, this is before the merge, if they were on Ethereum, if they were, then, yeah, okay, problem. But most of the artists weren't using Ethereum. They were using something else. So if you can't get through to people, if they don't understand the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. Which is a horrible catch-22 that we have. If the politicians, and I think I'm proud to say that in Australia and New Zealand, we do have a better separation between the public service and the elected politicians, but if they are reactive to the general population or the general perception, then it becomes very hard because we can sit on the CBDC forum group, and I just invited myself, <laughs> but it's hard to make the case for, say, newer technology if they will still be held back by the majority of the people. Or the other way around, like I've always been a very big fan of grassroots approach. I'm actually here in New Zealand and Australia to grow the near community and ecosystem here to raise awareness of these technologies. But then you may have the same issue. It's like you may have buy-in from the people, but how do they convey that to their authorities? Yeah, I don't think ground up won't work really here, unfortunately. But also it's just this, people have very binary thinking. And so they think, oh, if it's Suki Snarks, whatever, anonymity, you want that because you're obviously money laundering. And it's no, it depends. I really I the distinction between privacy and secrecy. <laughs> it's like, it's not a secret what you do in the toilets, but you still close the door. <laughs> so that's the example I often give people. Actually, one thing, I wrote down a few quotes that I use all the time, and my favorite quote in the world, in fact, I use it as a chapter heading in my thesis, and this comes back to almost everything in blockchain, and also particularly with DAOs, is that this is from a very famous E.O. Wilson, who's a sociobiologist, anyway, and it, he said, the real problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And so we have all this technology, but it is difficult to implement because of the way people act. And you can say, we've got all these tools to do all of this, but they say, no, we don't want it. We don't understand. And that's why small is better. You bring up the example of Singapore and Hong Kong. Another example of a very small country, it is a country beyond city-state, but it still has a very good track record of moving very fast. Pro-technology is Estonia. Actually, just on those, what's really interesting is you've brought up three countries and they have a common denominator, which New Zealand and Australia don't. So A rogue neighbour? <laughs> no, not that. Is that they have, Poor and Hong Kong have no natural resources. They have to innovate, and financial markets is the way they've innovated. Only a slightly different, but it, I don't know if you know the history. Again, I love history, so I'll go back to history. Is that when it broke off from the USSR, it had nothing. And in fact, Finland offered to give Estonia its second-hand telecommunications gear. And it said, we're fine, because it had nothing, no money. It didn't have a big legacy system. It just went digital. So it was this innovate. 
Whereas you come to New Zealand and we've got a thing called the curse of natural resources. We've got agriculture, we've got tourism. And so they've been our biggest thing. So we don't need, you get lazy, you don't have to, to do that. The one exception, the one country that's been able to really break free from that curse of resources trap is actually Norway. And so it's because it's got huge natural resources with gas and it's managed, but it's set up a sovereign fund and put money in. So it's quite hard to do that. So that's a big difference. I love that the curse of natural resources apply to every country, but you feel it more in some countries than others. We have in Venezuela as well. The challenge in Venezuela was it because the oil industry was so big and the oil company was owned by the state. We don't charge people taxes. Like whatever the regulations say, we don't even bother. Even businesses like all the money comes from one source and it's controlled by the government. Some people may disagree with me, but consciously or unconsciously, when you don't pay taxes, the relationship with the government changes. The government doesn't give a shit. They just don't care. The voters are not really there. It actually goes the other way. We'll just give away free money. Every time there's an election cycle, we'll give you a fridge or whatever, a cash bonus. Here's a bag of beans. So it's interesting that Australia and New Zealand have an aspect of the course, but it's still functional countries. The other country that I would say that has been able to break out from that challenge is Dubai. I know that they've been investing heavily to diversify from oil. At first, I thought it was a futile effort because it's like, well, you can build all these fake islands and try to get tourism there. For a while, if you bought flights, or maybe still... If you bought flight with Emirates and Etihad, they give you a layover in Dubai for free. But now with crypto, they are taking advantage of that regulatory window of opportunity. And they're playing the cards in a pretty risky way. If you ask me, because they're both inviting in the crypto talent. They maintain the relationship with the US, very strong allies. But they're also making deals with Russia and China, the local currencies. So they may be the new Switzerland. We'll see how that plays out for them but <laughs> it's, it is interesting and just there one of I don't know my geography very well but I Saudi Arabia is nearby and that's a classic example of the curse of natural resources the other another you just brought up Switzerland and that's an interesting thing because the Swiss have a natural experiment because they've got their cantons so you've got Zul and competition with other places and so they can do that and that's why Switzerland did have an early advantage over everyone else and also I ran down the US before but the US actually is innovative and because I've got the states so you've got the LLC laws and in Wyoming can do something different and so they've got that well you don't have that in New Zealand we've got no ability to do that Whereas they have a little bit more ability in Australia. Mind you, I don't think they've actually used it because you've got a difference between the state and federal law. You would know more about that than me. There's so much nuance in the US that anything that you hear in the media, it's almost like counterproductive. I have a lot of family in Florida. I've got friends in Texas. And I guess that's probably informing my experience of it is possible for people, or at least in that tech demographics, to pick up their stuff and move. Because what would have been two of the strongest hubs, finance in New York and tech in California, there's been a massive shift towards Florida and Texas. Even Florida, the mayor of Miami, just being open to welcome people. Look, let's be honest, Miami, it's not the best city to actually do tech. 
It's just been welcoming the talent and it's trying to grow into it. And yeah, I live with hope that we could do something similar in Australia and New Zealand. There's a quote that has been haunting me for over five years now. In 2016, there was an entrepreneur in residence. It was a program that the state of Victoria had or has. It was an American that came over. I went to a meetup. He was giving a talk and he said something that everyone found puzzling for different reasons. He said, I love Australia. If I were to start a new company, I'd start it here. And then he gave his reasoning. The standard of living is so high in Australia that everyday people live like what you aim for when you exit in the US. So in the US, you grind for 20 years and when you sell your company, then you live like an Australian. So he was like, this is the best of both worlds. I can both have a really good standard of living and, and a family, etc., while I grind in a company. And I pulled him over afterwards and I was like, you're getting it backwards. The high quality of living sometimes serves as a disincentive. Like, why would you take the risk? For years, I've been working for less than minimum wage when I was at university. And then when you make it, you get taxed and we've got like this tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if you wanted to talk about DAOs at all. Yes. So the reason why I asked about the awareness of the technology was to shift in that direction. So just before we started the conversation, you mentioned that you did some research on Nier. Yes, I did a brief research on Nier. Let's see. Let's see where the general populace is at. What did you find out? What piqued your interest? It's quite interesting sort of coming in very cold to, to Nier. That quote I said before about the problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology is particularly true with DAOs. When people say, we can do these new organisations and they didn't factor people in. And that's why the DAO, the first one, failed. I can see with NEAR and like the NDC, so that's the NEAR Digital Collective, is trying to work with people, how people operate. And what I find um, is to be expected, but people have, are finally working out that decentralization is really difficult, like really difficult. And decentralized organizations are nothing new. We've had decentralized organizations for a very long time, but they haven't scaled and they're quite small because decentralization is really difficult. If you let anybody put forward a proposal, and if you let everybody vote on that proposal, it basically doesn't work. And in fact, the first DAO, which I've identified, I think this is the first DAO, is BitShares. And that failed. It failed in that nobody wanted to vote for anything because they didn't want to spend any money, even though it needed to update the protocol. So they had to resort back to 12 proxy voters, which is effectively centralization. Bit of a roundabout way is most organizations are centralized because it's much easier to deal with. And what I found amusing was the is a document formation of near digital collective and call for participation in the community working group what is there is effectively a recreation of what, of a democratic government with two houses a president an executive and it's like really 
Yes, two things. The first one would be looking at the New York tech stack and why I've chosen that ecosystem. And then the second one is the challenges around governance. And there's actually a really interesting story behind why they take it so seriously in the ecosystem. So the near founders are, and the core team in general, are very impressive. They come out of Google TensorFlow. Ilya, to this day, is one of the most cited, especially recently because of the old AI buzz. He's one of the fathers of it. I actually don't know how old he is, but he's got a baby face. Very unsuspecting for the amount of output in the industry. Skidanov comes from Microsoft, Azure. They basically look at the way that we do computing now and parallel processing and scaling real-world applications and they couldn't understand why this isn't being done in blockchain. There are some fascinating early debates between them and the Solana teams. Solana approach is scaling through more computing power. We'll just keep adding more machines. Near scales through software. And the Solana team just says, look, if you could do it, good on you. It's a great approach, but it's just a very hard problem to solve. So it seems like we may be looking at a protocol or a modern layer one that has a functional solution. Basically, they're looking at cross-shard communication. So you're able to spin out more shards, but they're able to talk to each other. And that's huge because even with the EVM sharding model, the shards are isolated. There's the data layer and the processing layer. Back in 2018, the story goes, Ilya meets with Vitalik, and they're like, hey, we've got this, let's just migrate over, and we just call it ETH 2.0. And at the time, Vitalik was like, look, this looks great. It may work. I'm not sure. But we just don't have any governance in place. Like Ethereum as it is, we just don't have any power to the side. And that's why even during the early days, the only mechanism for the siding after the DAO incident is a fork and let people choose which chain you want to be on. That is a nightmare when you look at the current scale. And even when you look at layer twos now, there isn't any official embracement from the Ethereum Foundation or the Ethereum community. We do one, we do two. There's a really interesting fragmentation of all these solutions. And it's fine at the experimentation stage, but it's very hard to see how it can scale in a cohesive way, especially if you want to bring your community with you. Challenges that I'm seeing in the near ecosystem that would apply to any other ecosystem is how can you onboard strong partnerships and reassure them that the tech stack is going to be there in two years' time. We've already seen big deals with Disney and Facebook being shredded <laughs> less than six months after they've been signed. When Ilya and Skidinov just go back to their windowless room, they've shared some photos. It's hilarious. I'm assuming it would have been a very expensive office in San Francisco, but it was like the beginnings. They've always had that governance principle in mind. How can we make it sure that the protocol can evolve? How can we make it sure that people have the opportunities to get involved and grow with it? There's initiatives around decentralizing the development. So there's a developer DAO. They put out proposals inviting developers to, to participate. I guess I had to summarize it. There is the problem that they're trying to solve or the inception. Then there is a vision of where it could go. And now we have these early experiments with the NDC. Governance is the hardest thing. And I've been saying this for many years, and is that the tech's the easy bit. And people, I know people that are developers get really annoyed, but it's, but honestly, it is. It's people. That is the hard bit to solve for. There are very few, what I would, relatively few DAOs, really. They're Dinos. They're DAO and name only. 
They really are. And you were saying before about, I think from memory, marketing, whatever, saying they put forward proposals for people to, to or work they want done. That's not a DAO. Yeah, I found fascinating that your PhD is from the School of Philosophy. Oh, no, that's just a the way it works in oh, New okay. Zealand. So, yeah, we have some name doctorates, but I do, yeah, there's quite a bit of philosophy. But what I actually did in my thesis is it's very interdisciplinary from a whole broad range. And actually, just a bit of a reason why normally you do your doctorate at the beginning before you even start being an academic. But when I started... Oh, probably before you were born, probably. No, not many people had a PhD in law, and or PhD, full stop. Sorry, people in law, a PhD was very rare. And so I thought that I should really get one, even though I've supervised a PhD through to completion. So mine was a little bit the other way around, because normally you start with nothing and you build up. But I've done a whole lot of stuff and came through it that way. But maybe I've got a different I don't think I've got a different view from a lot of people because, as I said, Dao and name only. You have got this big spectrum from completely decentralized through to completely decentralized. And I think I said earlier, it is naive to think that you can have completely decentralized. We've tried that and it doesn't it just doesn't work. And so where about along the where about along the continuum are you going to be? What I'm looking at the NDC, is that is really is replicating our current system. Yeah, I've got a mantra that the uni- I'm grateful for everything that's happened. The universe is conspiring to help me achieve my mission. That's my 10 minutes in the morning. But I think there's a reason why you waited up until the right time to do the PhD. I think there's a calling between the DAOs. Can you imagine if you'd done your PhD 20 years ago or whatever, and then you'd missed out this dower train. See, what's really interesting is that if people go and read my... I would, it's a PhD thesis, so it's written a certain way, which I... It's, even though I'm an academic and I've got a ton of papers, I, it's, academic papers, and especially thesis, is not written for people to really understand. It's for academics talking to other academics. So I do a lot of public outreach and other things, which targeting as people can understand a bit better. But anyway, when I started my PhD, because I was talking with someone who I knew who was law and economics. And we're thinking, okay, how do we do, I want to do something in blockchain, but I, but blockchain's massive. So how do we corral it? And so I thought, what about DAOs? Because I've also done a lot on business organizations. Okay. So again, linking up stuff that I've done. And this was at the end of 2017. And when I decided on the topic, and at that stage, it was like a DAO winter because it was not that long after the implosion, and there was almost nothing on DAOs. There was a few pieces, there was nothing in the academic literature. And so I was having to do this work with, and it just exploded. So it was like... It's good timing. It was, yes, it was good timing. But when I was started trying to find anybody that knew anything about DAOs in the, in the government was almost impossible. So how long did it take you to write? Because I think it was published in May 2021. Yeah, so I really started beginning of 2018. Wow. So it's it was coming up. There was nothing. I would have a Google search. And I started Google search, send you alerts. I had DAO and then decentralized autonomous organization. And 
I would get sort of something, I don't know, once every couple of weeks on Dow, but that was more about, I don't know, the Asian Dow or whatever. It was nothing to do with this. And then as I was going along, I would have something every day and there'd be 10 different things. I knew it was going to be challenging, but I didn't realize it was going to blow up. But again, this was another thing. When I first came across DAOs, it was actually at that initial conference in 2016. I knew that this was a thing that would keep on going. And the implosion of the DAO didn't mean to say it was bad at all. And in fact, I do remember, I don't know if you do, if you remember about this, but some of the listeners might, is that when the DAO imploded and there was all this people going, should they fork or not, and the price of Ether dropped, a lot of people sold their Ether. They thought that was it. And I was thinking, no, it's a bit like getting a bad Android app. It's the app. And yeah, I was proven in that situation. And in fact, it was the best thing that could have happened. Because we all seen what happened with, with the fork, where they kept it as if the, the hacker had legitimately hacked into it. That hasn't worked, because it hasn't got the community behind it. Yeah, the, the DAO is fascinating, and I'm pretty sure that those books and entire thesis written about it, because... The arguments at the time were very simple. Humans, or a centralized group, shouldn't change what happened on-chain. That's the whole point of the blockchain. But at the same time, the hacker or the exploiter of the DAO ended up with 14% of the Ethereum supply. So regardless of which scenario of governance and security modeling you had going forward, ironically, one person owning 14% of the supply made it too centralized. So it was a very interesting compromise of principles. I think that people that supported the DAO at the time were very clear on the very unusual set of circumstances. There's been some hacks or exploits scenes that would not have had the same level of support. Before we keep teasing out what the NDC is, I'd love to see how you define decentralization and then the research methodology, I saw that you have some really interesting sections around the types of DAOs. We've got DAOs in name only. You've got resolution mechanisms, which I'd love your insights because <laughs> overnight there's been this crazy shit fight with the NDC. I've been trying to weigh in and mediate. So there's a lot there. So with decentralization, the type of DAOs, there is a big spectrum from the one side is radically decentralized through to centralized with all organizations. And what we've seen so far with the completely decentralized, they don't work, okay? Because if people have to put in proposals to do things, they could be flooded. The people who have to make the decisions don't have the technical capability, all sorts of reasons, and they have just have not worked. The question is, how do you design a decentralized system that does work? And it is really difficult. And that's what NDC and other people are struggling with. Now, there is no one perfect system because there's a quote that I've got in my thesis, and it's this is from a book called A Simple Way. And it says, there is no such thing as survival of the fittest, only survival of the fit. This means there are a number, there's no one answer that is right, but many answers that may work. Yeah. Interesting. And we've seen that, if you think about it, because if there was survival of the fittest, there'd only be one type of animal. 
but we don't. We have a whole lot. So experimentation is good, and that's what we need. But coming back to human emotions and our Paleolithic emotions is as soon as there's a whole lot of money involved, people don't really experiment because you've got people with vested interests, and they're not going to do anything where they could lose money. And we saw that almost with the Dow. It got too much money. If we could only bring, if we could only take money out, it would be better. But then if there is no skin in the game, then people's decision-making changes. It's really difficult. And I personally think there should be more experimentation. And there is quite a bit happening. Even though we're pretty advanced with this decentralization experiment, it's fascinating to see that we don't have a cohesive understanding of what decentralization means. Different people come at it from different angles. I think that a useful framework may be to focus on what problem are you trying to solve. If you look at some real world examples, you may be able to take out some principles, like for instance, fully decentralized, the weather. Sunrise, sundown, it rains, we don't control at all. It's just there for us. The roads, you start to see differences. Anyone can jump on the road and drive, but some roads are private an open mic. Technically, anyone can jump on the stage, but not at the same time. And you have some parameters, only do five minutes. But somebody organized that event. So you can start to see how, if you keep looking at examples, and my favorite one is a decentralized music festival in Berlin, MyFest. It takes place on Workers' Day, the 1st of May, because traditionally there were a lot of very violent protests and clashes with the police. So a decentralized community of artists and musicians came together to counter that with music and art and love. And that day, across one suburb, and it's increasingly spilling over to separate suburbs, Crowdsburg, I think it is, there's DJs on every corner in front of stores. There's just people everywhere. It's fascinating to me because no one really organizes the event, but there is coordination. Like It's not like you show up on the day and pick a spot. People allocate different corners and there's an understanding like, okay, why are we going to play some toilets? And someone does liaise with the police because, you know, there's still riots. <laughs> so it's interesting looking at all those examples. I think what I've come to and where the NDC sort of leads is there's decentralized leadership or decision making. And then there's the decentralization or the opening up of the opportunities. The aim is to create an ability for anyone to access a huge pile of money to empower them. There's no ways for me to say, hey, ANZ, I've got this idea for growth in Canterbury. Do you want to give me $10,000? But with these vehicles that are attempting to be decentralized, in theory, that should be an option. And here is where we enter the really murky territory of who are the decision makers? What is the criteria utilized? How does it evolve over time? Because the leadership in theory should also be open for people to rise. And what are the recourse mechanisms? Because if there's no ownership of the project, you know, who comes after you? You give me the $10,000 and then it disappears. So that's a sort of setup that they're striving towards now. I really like that you probably rank very low on the agreeable spectrum. And as my VIP guest, you're not holding back on 
being honest uh, and criticizing were appropriate. I actually agree with you. I think that the framing of having a digital state, it's extremely problematic because in traditional states, by definition, you exclude people. New Zealand wouldn't work as a country if everyone in the world can vote. And our tax base wouldn't work if you have a right to give everyone in the world healthcare. But it's just very problematic when you start looking at that digital layer that covers everyone. But how do you create a system that caters for everyone when only a few participate? Like, it's horrible. (laughs) It's hard. That's what I said. It's really difficult. And so everyone's trying different things. A couple of things is that sometimes... We do things a certain way because they are the best way. Not always, but sometimes. And so maybe saying, okay, this sort of works. How could we tweak things to get a better outcome? And one of the issues that we have with democracy Okay, political democracy, is that we get these representatives in and we vote them in and then they do everything and then they come up for elections. One of the ways, and this is not me at all, it's, it's been thought about and maybe even implemented, is to say we we'll use something like delegated voting. So I will give you certain people, you can vote on these different aspects for me or you get it so that There's five people that I trust their opinion on, and so I'll take the majority of the way that they vote type of thing and cut and slice it all up. So it's not for everything because, for example, I in New Zealand, we have various political parties, and I agree with different parts of all the different parties. But And I'm surely not the only person like that. But I can't differentiate. But now I could say I want, for certain issues, you can take my vote for this one. And we can do that with blockchain. We can. We can. So to use the technology to do that, I've got no concern with voting, especially with the with proposals coming in, that you have some vetting to see whether that they fit with like strategic purposes and things like that. As long as they're generated by the community to have people on a committee, but then normally again with the committee is that they get voted on for a certain period of time. What you could do there, I think Polkadot was doing this or someone else, is that we, at any stage they could be removed if pe- people don't like what they So this is different from what's gone before. So that's a thing you can do. Now, just on another aspect of dispute resolution, and I stuck this in my thesis only because I do a lot of, I've done a lot of work on dispute resolution. I've done stuff on industry dispute resolution schemes. I've been on governing bodies for dispute resolution schemes. That's so quite interesting. We're talking like real world. Real world, sorry. Real world, okay. Is that I think most people, and this is backtracking a bit, Kleros. I say Kleros is a really interesting thing. It's trying to decentralize justice because access to justice is a real issue. And that's one of the reasons I don't like law is because someone could have broken the law and yet if you want to enforce your rights, it's going to, you don't have the money. And so coming back to one of my former main area of research is copyright, is we've got very strong laws. But from the top of my head, we've only ever had one case in New Zealand of an artist or creator actually suing for breach of copyright because there's no money. So, yeah, you've got these rights, but you're not going to do anything about it. There's actually a fascinating case in Australia 
I'm sure you could probably give us more details because it's been a long time, but it was this American company. It was a, what is it, the Texas something club. They chose to sue in Australia to enforce the digital downloads rights. It was a case that was the copyright holder going against the internet service providers, the ISPs. And it was fascinating to see their strategy. They deliberately chose a small ISP from Western Australia, and it came out in the documents that they targeted them as the most likely to roll over. They weren't going to sue Telstra, a massive company, better funded government backing. And it was very interesting how all throughout the case, there was bad faith. Like the court actually required them to put down a deposit, like millions of dollars of deposits, because they feared that even if they lost, they would just leave Australia. Like they didn't have a presence or enough of a stake. And it was one of the few cases where I was satisfied with it making its way through the courts and it's setting a precedent and it's sending a strong message to people wanting to go down that avenue. But what is frustrating is how many people have the resources to choose to fight? Very few. And also people use litigation as a strategy. As a, and if you people remember someone like Lance Armstrong, he was a famous cyclist and he just bullying people. They rolled over and he was quite clearly in the wrong. I could go on forever, but I won't. But anyway, coming back to Kleros is trying to decentralise justice. But you've got a problem with, again, people not having enough information or the skill set to be able to resolve disputes. And I wrote in the chapter, I had a quote on this is dispute resolution. And I've changed my mind. This is the thing. If people don't change their minds, that's not a sign of weakness because when the facts change, then you need to change. So anyway, so I did have, initially I said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new mode that makes the existing model obsolete. And that's Buckminster Fuller, whatever. Now, I, and I wrote about Kleros, and I thought it was a good idea. But of course, Kleros has not really, it's still ticking along, but they're finding it's a little bit more complicated than they thought. Anyway, there was a really good podcast, which I can give to you afterwards, where they had Robin Hanson, and he is an economist and does other stuff, and he came up with prediction markets, which is a really interesting and powerful thing. He was having almost games with the poor interviewer from Kleros, because what Kleros is trying to do is do something completely different to try to solve the problem of access to justice and getting disputes resolved impartially and cheaply. Now, we do have a really good system for resolving disputes, which is the legal system, except that it's really inefficient. And as we discussed before, it's only if you've got vast amounts of money and it takes a long time. What about harnessing the or hacking the original system. And if you listen to the podcast, it gave the example of someone who has got a small amount of damage and it's, say, $100. You're never going to go to court. But you could use something like a lottery system and incentivize people. Everyone have a 1,000 people with $100. You put your token in and if it's pulled out, you've got $100,000 in which to go and you know, go through the courts to get the resolution. Anyway, there's different ways of doing things. 
And also, I do think that one of the issues that we have with our political democracy is that the politicians, and we just touched on this previously, they won't actually make changes that are for the good of the society because they want to be voted back in. Okay, so they'll do whatever is politically expedient. So we end up in a real mess. And so what you could do, and this is what they did in ancient Rome, is have sortition, which is where you have a lottery. So you have people, if they want to be involved, put your hand up and you get chosen by lottery and you can't re-stand you know, again. And this is would maybe take some of the heat out of DAOs, of people lobbying. I hear about people wanting to be DAO governance, and that's their hat type of thing. And it's, it goes against the centralization. I don't know. I just trying to rip everything up and start again, it's not really working. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always been the outcast in the near ecosystem. We had a very unusual situation beginning of 2022, after the strike of time. The former CEO of the New Foundation stands down. I think we could all agree that great guy, but not the best for the role, not the right time, not the right place. Within a month, he puts together a proposal to create a house of guilt, which would have been a DAO, calls himself a benevolent dictator, and basically announces the foundation is going to be putting $100 million worth of assets into this new vehicle. It didn't feel good. I work with a guy who's genuinely nice. I know that he had the right intention, but someone had to go to the governance forum and call it out. You don't get to fail upwards. You couldn't do it within the foundation. I don't trust you outside. Start where we started. Do a local meetup in your city. Grow your community. Apply for grants. Like, Work your way up. And I'm not proud to have torched that to the ground. But it was something where people messaged me afterwards and they said, thank you for standing your ground because either our pay was dependent on it or we just didn't want to engage in that shit fight. And this is something that has come up over and over again. Even now we're seeing it, Creative's DAO had some issues with funding because it's very hard to identify what is both a creative endeavor, which is basically anything. We've got artisans doing like hand weaving, and where does it intersect with the interests of the protocol? If you want to seek funding from the community treasury, there has to be a connection with Near. That's my position. I'm very strongly on it. Same, I'm the only one torching some of these proposals that just don't make sense. I mean, they post funding after $2 million were dispersed. Nothing to show for it. So this is not unique to Near. There are some insane stories from Harmony. I'm starting to see some things out of Polkadot. There are cycles where... People are reluctant to speak up front, even though the foreseeable consequence of the setup is clear. And after things have collapsed, then we try to... I'm trying not to make it descend into the finger pointing. And I guess that could be the best test for was it decentralized at all to start with? Because the point of a DAO and the centralization is, can we remove the human element to have a self-enforcing system? as I put in my thesis, is that an AI DAO is easy. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well, no, God. No, if you've got like a self-driving car that decides who to pick up and service itself and things like that, that it's when you bring in people that gets messy. But another, coming back to what is decentralized, is 
if you had the leaders all die in a plane crash, will it still keep on going? I have the best story. So when I arrived in Melbourne, 2010, I start university. I joined every club and society. I joined the snowboarding club. I've never seen snow in my life. I joined clubs and societies of countries I didn't know that existed. And at the end of the day, I was like, it is very strange that there was no club, no cultural club for Spain or South America. And we're a much smaller community on this side of the world. But so I inquired and uh, it turns out it got deregistered for corruption, <laughs> which I thought was extremely ironic and on point. So I, I started the process to re-register it. It was funny because the lady at the clubs and society's office, I don't know what made her think that I was the brother of the previous <laughs> club. The good old family keeps on the legacy going. But she said that the real test for a well-run club and society is if it is still standing after the original founder stepped down. And I kept that in mind all throughout my rain. And as I'm looking at reconnecting with clubs and societies now, mostly on the blockchain side and computing side, I was browsing the Monash clubs and society website yesterday. And I was extremely proud. I'm not going to say I was about to cry, but maybe that the Slack, the Spanish Latin American club is still there. They changed the logo. The entire committee is unrecognizable to me. But even the same structure that I put back in the day, because it wasn't just social, we had tutorials, we had education. The exact same structure is in place. The events we started 10 years ago are still in place. So it was really reassuring to see that continuity. I did. I was very picky on who took over after me. It was certainly not decentralized. That may actually color a little bit in startups early days due to things that don't scale. In Web3, now we have this notion of progressive decentralization how can we make sure that we actually keep progressing? It's really difficult, yes. Are there any instances of decentralized arrangements that you've seen recently that either make you think that is a good start or that could work or alternatively may raise some red flags and maybe counter to some of the research or best practices? <sighs> They may have changed it, but I quite liked the way Polkadot were running. They may have changed it. This was a good year ago since I looked. But that was a thing where they had a sort of a central committee and people could make proposals. The members would be voting on two proposals. One would be generated by the committee, and so they would have their discussions, and one would come through the token holders. But it was a system where people, if you put forward a proposal, it would only go to the next stage if someone had seconded it, but not a normal second, like putting your hand up. You actually had to put skin in the game, had to put money. So the best proposals would slowly go forward. And I thought that was a, a reasonable compromise because you'd get all the vetting and things for that. Do you have any views on compulsory voting? Both, I guess, at a national state. I believe Australia is the only one that has it. Maybe Does New Zealand have compulsory? No, we don't, but I know Australia does. It's tricky, okay? So it all depends. Most people don't have the mental bandwidth or the knowledge. 
to do that. And that's why I do think that delegated voting or liquid voting, they're two different, slightly different things, is a good, again, compromise. Because I can say, I trust you on certain things, but there's other people and you just divvy your vote up. And those people, and you can change it at any stage. Another way of explaining all this is that almost all of what we're talking about in governance, it's these ideas are not new, but the tooling is new. And again, sorry, <laughs> back to another quote in my thing, is that is all this knowledge is there, is that it's just lost in the archive. In fact, as one of the quotes said, no, we would do well, basically, to not lose everything in the archive. And in fact, I remember one of the podcasts I listened to a while ago, they had someone from science, and he moved over to social sciences and started doing reading. And he goes, oh my God, there's all this stuff. It just hasn't been implemented. So liquid democracy was very difficult because of the high transaction costs. That's gone now. You can do it really simply. So Again, I said with clear-offs, they're trying to rip everything up and start again. Hang on, just look at what we've already got and see if you can change that. I am mindful of time. So I'm going to give you a super quick overview of the near tech stack and why I'm excited. And then I'm going to make you a proposal that you can't refuse. Now we'll see how we go, but I honestly think that you and I are going to team up and take over New Zealand. So I was early Ethereum. I was a little bit disenchanted after CryptoKitties crashed the network. I tuned out for about two years. And then in 2020, I started paying attention to the modern layer once, see what can scale. At some point, it became clear to me that the scalability issue was going to be a technical hurdle that we can overcome. As you mentioned, it's all about the human experience. Is it usable? Product has made an insane amount of progress because they've understood people. They do a lot of testing and they really design things around and for people. Nier was the first and to date one of the very few blockchains that the teams are very skilled. They come from big tech. They've solved to a very large extent the scalability hurdles. And there's been a relentless focus on that user experience layer. So there are several features such as a Nier, all the accounts by default are human readable. You can have alexseams.nier. You've got very cheap transactions. They're now implementing meta transactions. So a third party can cover your costs. So you go to an application as a business model. You can just pay for all your users. They're getting closer and closer to what Web 2 would be. And now they've got that vision towards Web 2.5. How can we onboard existing businesses onto the blockchain? And seamless experience for the users, but trying to find ways to unlock value in ways that are unique to Web 3. There are several verticals there, but... Going into the proposal, are you ready? This is going to be wild. I really like in general how nuanced you are and like on point. And during the Future of Money presentation, you said, I like the idea of having a sandbox in New Zealand, but not New Zealand being the sandbox. So let's start small. Let's experiment. Low risk. Let's really maximize for... I guess, uh, progress or findings, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but <laughs> without risking the farm. I think that I've got an idea that if you start at a university level or even at a faculty or like student society level, very small, it may be able to scale nicely. So one of the things that people are really experimenting on near now is account abstraction. On Ethereum, there is one public key to one private key. Anyone with a private key has access to everything. Unless it's a multi-sig. 
unless it's a multi-sig. On Neo, you can have multiple private keys and it gives you a lot of permissioning around granting access only to specific function calls within a specific contract. So at a very first stage, what allows you to do is, for instance, I could send you an email with a link. It has a prepaid account for you and you can claim an NFT. Bundled experiences, super smooth for the user. There's a lot of people experimenting now with things like ticketing. The next level is trial accounts. So a trial account would enable you to give someone a wallet, the way that I experienced, email everyone. You can preload it with money, but you can only spend the assets on a limited range of methods. So what I'd like to start experimenting with is, within universities, let's say we start with the student clubs and societies, get their memberships on chain, they can have an NFT that represents it. There's probably some cool use cases. You go to a barbecue, you go to a tutorial. But I think that the big level goal, and I'm pulling some strings to see what we can do is compulsory student union fees. In Australia, it's over $300 million per year. The universities get some sort of discretion or first dibs on spending the money towards students. They just keep refurbishing the same lounges and whatnot. But what if we could have a system where you give all the students a wallet and hand over the money to them, but it can only be spent on campus. Parking, food on campus, the gym, the bookshop, whichever legislation allows. And the cool thing about trial accounts is that any money that it's not spent can actually be returned back to the funder. So there's a very wide range of adoption and experimentation. And yeah, if you are up for it, I think that we should do it. <laughs> I have to think about it. <laughs> but also, again, it's political. Political at the university level? Yeah. or Interesting. And I'm and talking about governance, I, for my sins, one of the bodies I sat on was our university council for nine years. I <laughs> have first-hand experience with, mind you, it doesn't make a lot of decisions. Yeah, I can. we can talk offline, as they say, about it. One of the things also is... I don't know if it was covered with what you're saying, is is getting the students to effectively vote for how it's spent as well. Yeah, it's actually like a big bundle, right? And at the early experimentation stage, there's actually different configurations. So for instance, there's Near, which is a public blockchain, and then there's Calimero, which is basically a private version of Near. Like you can have your own shard and have much more privacy. There's a bridge between the two and they can make contract calls between each other, but it'd be really interesting to experiment with giving students the information for them to basically seek out different things. Another example is Near has Aurora, which is an EVM, an Ethereum virtual machine on top. And Aurora just deployed silos. So basically with a few clicks, basic configuration, you can deploy your own EVM on top. I think it'd be a really good goal to have. Which student clubs and societies want to experiment? It's going to be an eight-month experiment. Deploy your own shard. Just get people learning. I do think that given the current regulatory environment, probably the more that we can invest in the younger generations to play around with the technology and familiarize themselves is going to yield better results in the long term, even if you abandon the shard within nine months or whatever the case may be. Yes, I've got to wind it up in a second, but 
actually one thing that's quite interesting is that some of the younger and the yeah males young males they're interested in crypto tokens money and I always try to steer people away it's the it's the technology it's what it allows us to do so that might be a good way of showing them that this is not about speculation there is far more that is going on underneath the hood yeah that's always been the challenge right for the marketing DAO what I'm trying to tell people is we're at the stage where we have to invite people to imagine what they could build with the existing toolkit. There's been a lot of big brains working on these increasingly better solutions, and now we're literally shouting at the wind to see who comes and build with it. That's why I'm so excited to try to build these community or grassroots initiatives here to, yeah, I know that the student clubs and societies membership, or say you put $100,000 on the blockchain and see how people spend it, that may not be the killer use case, but the people that get exposed to it while they're at university most likely will go on to build those killer use cases. Yes, and people have realised that. That's why, for example, Apple gets in the, the schools and then educational discounts to get people hooked and then you for life. And I think both Apple and Google, they've got some really good apps and tooling around teaching kids how to code. You've yeah, got to yeah, yeah. get them in the ecosystem early. Oh, no, I know my son and my daughter. They're, oh, my son's just started university and my daughter's about fourth year now. Yeah, they use Google Drive and all those. Yeah, it's clever. Get them when they're young. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> Alex, I am extremely grateful for your time. I know that we barely started scratching the surface with DAOs, but the invitation is open for you to join the Near Digital Collective Working Groups. I know that we're over time, but a reflection on where we're at is that, honestly, I would be embarrassed if you joined some of these groups. There's a lot of bickering. There's a lot of unsophisticated arguments. There's a lot of potentially malicious intent. It's actually a big challenge to find ways to attract and retain talent. That's all right. Okay. okay. Thank you, That's Alex. Right. Oh, thank you, Alex. <laughs> That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.